Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, it's with Dr. Robert Howard of the Blow Monkeys. It's a great one, this. Um, we, we do it over Zoom. Um, we recorded it on the 17th of December, uh, just before Christmas. Um, Robert was at home in Spain and uh, and you're in for a treat. It's a really, really nice, warm, interesting chat. Um, before we get on with that, a few thank yous. Thank you to Scroobius Pip uh, and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Thank you to 76 for producing this podcast. And and if it's your first time listening, then uh, when you get to the end of this, this lovely chat with Robert, um, go and have a look in the archives because you'll find yourself looking at over 200 episodes with some of your favourite musicians, actors, artists, comedians, producers, DJs. Go and have a go and have a little rummage around in the archives and uh, and see which ones uh, tickle your fancy because there's some there's some crackers there. Um, if you'd like to uh, have even sort of more content to listen to, I put up four radio shows each week and video episodes and such over on my Patreon page. So this uh, this podcast does have an accompanying Patreon, which uh, allows people that enjoy it and would like to support it uh, the means to do so. So you can go over there and and any kind of support offered on this really really appreciated um and you can find out about all of this stuff at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com right let's get on with it please enjoy off the beat and track podcast with dr robert howard it's off the beat and track podcast on the distraction pieces network with me stew with him Okay, we are recording. Joining me today via the means of Zoom call uh, is Dr. Robert Howard. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Um, despite everything, you know, uh, sort of lockdown suits my personality, really. I've been doing that for sort of 35 years. Um, so, you know, the idea of uh, Spending more time with myself and reading books and not feeling guilty about it and things like that, I quite enjoy it. But obviously, you know, um, there are things that I miss, like making a living. How have you found that, like, uh, in regards to you know, the, the sort of the creative side of what you do? As, as, as that, you know, not not just playing, but but writing and stuff. Have you managed to sort of find more time to to do stuff like that in twenty twenty? To be honest, I always write. I, I, I kind of do that all the time. It's a kind of form of therapy for me, but I, I, I've just had a little bit more time, I guess, to work on things. So I've been working on a Blow Monkeys album, 
since about February um, that's kind of to commemorate, I guess is the word, our 40 years together next year. Um, and alongside that, I've been working on these Monk's Road compilations that I've worked with and I've been helping produce an album for Peter Capaldi. So I've been quite busy with all that and doing quite a lot of writing. So that's been good for me, but I do miss, I miss that kind of, um, the band, for instance, the gang. Mm. And I miss, and I miss just getting up on stage and playing, which I've, I've really begun to really appreciate even more in the last sort of few years than, than ever. That that's at the core of really what it is that we do, you know. And uh, so, yeah, we can't wait for that to, to happen again. So is that a home studio you're, you're, you're sitting in at the moment, Robert? Yeah, yeah, it's my little home studio, little drum kit that I have. Uh, luckily, the neighbours are far enough away not to worry about my drumming. Where, whereabouts yeah. is it? Where are you? I'm in... I'm in a, Andalusia in southern Spain. I mean, I'm about, I'm about 20 miles south of Granada and about 30 miles from the coast. And I'm sort of 800 metres high in a, in a village in the sort of foothills of the Sierra Nevada. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> it is lovely. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been here sort of 20 years. We came, <clears throat> my wife and I and the kids, and uh, bought a little bit of land and scrimped and saved and started to build bit by bit as we could. Because couldn't afford it in the UK. And also fancied just getting out, to be honest. Always fancied Spain, always loved it. So, um, but, you know, we're not, my kids are back in London now. They're not kids, you know, well, they are to me. And um, and I miss that, an older band live in London. So I had a connection with London up until obviously all this came along. So I was backwards and forwards. But no, I'll be honest, there could be worse places to be locked down. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. How are you? Uh, I'm 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 in Essex, just outside of uh, of East London, right. and uh, yeah, it doesn't sound quite as idyllic as as where you are, uh, Robert. Well, yeah, but you make of it what you what you can. I mean, I you know, right now I'd love to be in Essex, just outside of East London. I've had enough of this. <laughs> <laughs> Gladly swap with you, mate. Gladly swap. <laughs> All right, should we should we talk records? Um, yeah, I'm, go I'm going to ask you for track one. Uh, what you regard as the song. That has the greatest ever intro, please, Robert. Well, it's a close one thing for me. You can, ha- you can have some honourable mentions. The honourable mention would go to 20th Century Boy by T-Rex. Wonderful. Which has that great false start mm. on the guitar. And you just go, what? And when I heard that as a kid on the radio, Radio Luxembourg, Under the Pillow, it was so exciting. But I, I think the, um, the one that really gets me every time is, the, is that massive string introduction to... Sam Cook, a change is going to come. Oh, what a choice! Which for me, I was talking about this the other day to somebody. I think that's the greatest recording of all time. I think it is. Yeah. So, for so many reasons, he was a great singer. The, what what the songs about his performance, the production, everything put together is just a moment, such a big moment. But that intro is like you need an intro for a song like that for his voice to come yeah. in where it does. And boy, they've got it. Oh, and when that voice comes in as well. Oh, boy, that is spectacular. And it's quite crazy that you think, I mean, when was that written? Very early 60s? 63, 64, something like that. And the fact that everything that that song's written about is probably ringing as true as it ever has this year. It's crazy. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it could be an anthem for Black Lives Matter. It could be an anthem for so yeah. much, you know, because mm. it is it is just the song of hope. But obviously, it's rooted in the, in the in the civil rights movement mm. at that time. 
you, you know, there's a verse in it about going to the movies and not being, and not you know, just going, you know. I, I've never really checked that. There's a third verse, which is quite good. But no, I mean, I, Sam Cooke, I, I still love listening to, um, especially the gospel stuff, Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers mm. on Sunday morning. I'm not religious in that sense at all, but I, God, man, I, I don't, whatever gets you there, I don't mind what he's singing about. It's just there's something about his voice and those backing singers that are with him and everything. It just moves me deeply on a, on a kind of emotional level. And, and so that song kind of puts it all in one massive package. So I'm, I'm going to ask you in regards to songwriting. Um, from when you first started writing, you know, in the early days of, of, of the band and such, the way that people, yeah. you know, listened to music then was far different to how they listen to music now. You know, we live in a world of streaming and, you know, and, and, and you know, streaming, I guess, is where I'm, where I'm going with this. And, and what's happened is it, it feels as if attention spans are getting sort of shorter uh, and and the, the sort of music that I'm hearing now on the radio seems to start with a chorus. There's no fat on the bone, and it's like let's just cut to the chase. And I just wonder, over the years, if that's how ha- ha- the way that people listen to music and, and changing in, you know, the, the sort of technology in which people listen to music and the choice that's now out there and so readily available. If that's affected how you approach writing. Well, I guess I used to have a lot of fat on the bone, you know, in my songwriting. I to try. It took a while to get. Sometimes when I listened to the early stuff, um, it took a long time to get to what was the chorus, but it wasn't always the chorus. I, it was, I was just making it up as I went along. I had no, I had no particular skill at that. I just, I mean, I grew up listening in my household, like two older sisters, to Motown and an awful lot of Bacharach and David. And Bacharach and David is still where I'm at, really, in terms of that. For me, that's the king of songwriting structure, the way they do it. You know, I'm still trying to get there. But um, it's so clever. But then on the other hand, there's a, there is a tradition, which you're going back to, you know, the Mark Boland thing, you know, that kind of two and a half minute, bang, here we go, straight in. You know, Eddie Cochran and, and Buddy Holly, some of their records lasted one and a half, two minutes, mm. you know. So it's always been there. Both traditions have always been there. I guess in the 70s, things started to... You know, you start to get seven-minute Bohemian Rhapsody type singles, and yeah, you know, Mandy Fly Me with all these sub bits and other bits, and da da da. So that was quite punk came along and sort of wiped that away for a while. But there was, you know, there's room for both. But yes, I do agree fundamentally that the attention span thing has changed. The and the idea of listening to um, well, music's changed. Music's it's not as important culturally to young people, I don't think, except in pockets, except in really, you know, people that, you know, my son is one, is an example, he will listen to, he'll search it out, you know, something, something new. And, but that kind of search, you, you don't really have to do it so much anymore. We used to congregate in record shops and just stand there and listen and ask and pick up tips and all that stuff. And it's all available now. Mm. So it's a different, it's a different thing. And so much of the music has been used now for trying to sell these stuff. Yeah. That it's, uh, and I understand why writers do that. And don't, um, you know, I would probably, if, but if they approached me, I'd probably, but I mean, the thing is, it, it just changes the function of it. It felt more special, I think. Is, and now there are, there are other things which have, which have replaced that for, for, for young people, especially. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you know, but uh, yeah, it's still, um, but and yet, I say that, and yet it's probably now with streaming, you know, 
more people are listening to it than ever. Yeah. I mean, I, I got my Spotify. They send you these, oh, well done this year on Spotify. You know, you've had three and a half million streams. Oh, wait, how much? Oh, really? All right. <laughs> Right, let's get a takeaway. We're eating into that. They don't give you the earnings before the stats. Is it the stats, <laughs> then the earnings? It's stats, and it goes, Well, let's let, let's go back to the, the the early years for track two, uh, Robert. I'm going to ask you uh, the first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. An emotional impact on me. I would say that was um, I would be about nine or ten. Well, I mean emotional. I mean, as a kid, you know, I, I was like I said, I got these two sisters, and I would have listened to things on the radio. So things like all the Motown stuff, and I particularly remember helping my dad do something and Puppet on a String was on or something. But the one that really first, like, I went, oh, was standing at the uh, freezing cold terraces of uh, Kings Lynn Football Club, half-time, and they always played Engelbert Humperdings, Please Release Me. But after it came uh, Band of Gold, and um, that got me. There was something in that. I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd never really... Feet of pain, you know, and yeah. it just was like, wow, what is that? That is, it just it was just so joyful, but it also had, I guess, soul. It was soul that just went, whoa. It just really resonated with me. Something, something else clicked when I when I heard that, and I was just, and so I go to the football then, just praying that this DJ would play that again at half time because it was, you know, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know where I could get it. And, and what was that emotion? Joy and some form of uh, collective mechanism. I, I suppose. I mean, it's coming. I, I, it's hard to say that because I'm looking back and I'm and I'm intellectualizing what I felt as a nine or eight year old. So, uh, you know, I, I, I could say, oh, it's because it, it was rooted in the Baptist church experience and it was a gospel. I don't know all that really. Well, but but I'm reacting to that. I'm reacting to something in her voice, the the collision of her voice, the chords, and the sort of yearning quality and emotion that's coming out of the song yeah so this all, all that put together it was, i knew that it was different to just pop it on a string yeah you know? yeah yeah i feel that there was something something else in it another another emotion i probably was too young to process but i definitely reacted to okay well let's stay in the the, the early years for track three i'm going to ask you the song that reminds you of your time at school please robert I hated school. I had a really bad, bad time at school because I failed the 11 plus. And so uh, all my friends went to the secondary modern because they did too. But my parents didn't want me to go there. So I went to some horrible little boarding school for a year until I could pass the 13 plus. But they said I came home on weekends. But the only thing that got me through this little boarding school uh, every week was the radio and underneath the pillow, like I said to you. And I guess if I'm honest, although I was always listening to that, I was already hooked on T-Rex. There was always something about that. The song that really gave me that thrill as a little kid was was um, Ballroom Blitz. Was it Ballroom Blitz? The one where they say, are you ready, Steve, at yeah. the beginning? Yeah, that one. That's a great intro as well. That's yeah. a pop. 
where you, where you, you think, oh, well, he's setting it up here and he's playing that rockabilly beat and then the guitar comes in and it's just a joyride. You know, it's a clever song. And uh, so, you know, that would have been the one that, uh, that most reminds me of school because it was, it, it was um, you know, it was a blessed relief really where I was at the time until I got away from that and went back, you know. But that was, that was, that was the early 70s school experience. It would have been the sweet. It's... The Sweet has been one of the bands that, when I set this podcast up, I didn't think would would pop up very often. And it's yeah. that band has probably been the most chosen band out of all bands. Really? So many people that I probably would not have thought would have chose the Sweet have have gone chose, chosen a track by them. And and I just I just want to ask this, um, Eudis Robert. Like, I mean, was Top of the Pops an important thing for you growing up? Massive, massive. Um, I probably uh, it would have been I mean I went on a school trip with my junior school in 1971 and I remember down to Devon that was the only thing and we stopped at some cafe on the way back and there was a jukebox and somebody put or Jeepster was playing in the background and I remember thinking some, oh I've heard that before that's that funny guy I've seen him on telly weird and I was hooked. And so by the time, and that was 71, so by the time 72 came along, I was right in the middle of, the, of that whole experience. So 72 comes along, and obviously, you know, everyone talks about the Bowie thing on, on top. For my generation, that was massive. But for me, Mark Bowen was more. That Metal Guru was the apex of the, of the Mark Bowen experience because they had the, 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 the weird effect on, on the television. It was almost science fiction. Saturday afternoon, you know, it was it was almost like Doctor Who or something, but it was it was magical and it, and because it was such a communal experience, twenty five million people would have been watching it, and that's all there was that it had the power to change things culturally. So, you know, when I, when I started forming a band and, and there were people, you know, you could come up with all the highfalutin ideas in the world about what it was that you were trying to achieve, but really deep down, I just I wanted to get on top of the pops because I thought. And it was still, even when we were doing it in mid-80s, it, was, it had dipped a bit, but it was still culturally, it was still a big deal. You were still getting those, and it still changed everything for you as a band. So, but I think that, someone said, like, Christmas peaked in 1973 with that, with that Slade and Wizard and all that. That's true, you know. It's, for me, it's like, that was it. So, Top of the Pops was, that Christmas Top of the Pops was also a massive thing. And it would be great, because it would... It would be mum and dad sitting in there, and my dad going, "Oh, what's going on?" But he loved Roy Wood. He thought, "Yeah, no, he's good," you know. <laughs> and my mum, my mum was, my mum was like, "Cool," you know. She was like, "Oh, this is great," you know. And I was, well, "Will you buy me that album? I'm here. Is it's cool?" You know, the slider. Can you yeah. get it? And um, my sister. It was, it was a family. You know, it was, it was great. And it was a, it was such an important part of growing up. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss wow nice yeah what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on bomba socks underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds yeah 
That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, massively, massively. And like, you know, I, I always like to ask guests that have appeared on there, like, you know, that, that generally would mention you know, their formative years and and the only place you would generally see the musicians would, you know, your favourite bands would be that one opportunity a week to see them on top of the pops. Yeah. Um, and so the, the the next question I always ask guests is, is like, how was it to finally get on there? Um, it's mundane, really. <laughs> they pick you up. It was the BBC, you know, so they, they pick you up at nine in the morning and you do a run-through, about three run-throughs, but you're not singing anyway. You know, it's a charade. And you pretend, the other thing is that you pretend to record the track the night before in the studio because of the union rules. Oh, so you right, sit yeah. and the union guy to come out so you can switch, swap, swap the tapes around. I mean, there's been a couple of times people didn't swap them and they made a mistake because you can hear on top of the pubs that it's not very good. So, yeah, it was, I mean, obviously it was, a, it, it was massively exciting. The first time we did it, it probably was digging your scene. That would have been 86. I was living in Brixton, uh, right on the high street above a record shop in a little flat with a DJ called Hector, who was a, who was a DJ at the Wag Club. And they sent around this posh car and I'm like, no, send it away. For fuck's sake. Send it, you know, I'm going to get, <laughs> I don't want this. So, um, get on the tube and go up to Shepherd's Bush, you know, and, uh, and and then it, and then you just basically, well, it's you, you, you. It's like the men in white coats telling you what to do. You stand there, you do this, and you run through it, and, it, and it's vaguely exciting. But by the time you get to do it for real in the evening, you've already done it five times, and you're a little bit worse for wear because you're just hanging out in the bar. And I can see how things start to go wrong. <laughs> but nevertheless, the next day, and it's filmed the day before. You still, I wake up on Thursday, and I'm just, oh fuck. On top of the pops, that is wow, we've done it, and of course, that's not it, you know, at yeah. all. That's, that's not that's not what it is at all, really. In the end, that's not what sustains you. But as but as a as a as a youngster, that was definitely in there. And I, anybody who denies that is lying, I think, because yeah. it's such a big deal. Just just going back to school, uh, briefly before the, the, the next question, did you know what you wanted to be when you was at school? Mm. I knew what I didn't want to be. I knew I didn't want to be at school. I didn't want to do anything that that uh, involved putting a suit on, although I did wear suits. <laughs> but I didn't. I just. I wasn't very good with authority figures. I couldn't. I, I, I didn't really have any musical talent when I was in school in England. I was. I was pretty good at sport because I had to be because I just. I just want to try and get out. So I got to the level quite high, high levels of um, cricket and football where, like, I had trials. Uh, and so it's in the back of my mind, like, everyone just to try and do football or... And, and music wasn't an option until I went to live in Australia. When we moved there, 
when my father died, we moved there when I was 15. And my sister had a guitar. She was already living there. And I just was hanging about in the flat one day. And there was a sort of Eagles Made Easy songbook. And by the time they all came back that evening, I'd learned it. it was, I just found it really easy. So from that point on, that's when it clicked. Oh, I, I can do this. I, I love music. I love what I think. I'm, so I started busking and started making things up because I couldn't remember songs and all that. So again, the first time somebody stands there and listens to something you've written and pops a, a coin in the hat, you're hooked. That's it. This is what I want to do now. There's no question. So by the time I was very quickly from 15 to 16, that was it. And also what had happened, obviously, in that period in my life was that I'd moved just as punk was breaking, 77. Mm. So all my friends and contemporaries were beginning to go, oh, we could do, you know, we took that seriously, that like, here's three chords, I'm going to form a band and all that. So I went to Australia thinking, what am I doing? I'm in the other end of the world, you know. Um, well, I was living in Kings Lynn. There were no gigs ever. But the nearest, the nearest gig was West Wellington Pavilion. And just before I left, poster went up. T-Rex and the Damned, West Longton Pavilion. Two weeks after I just, you know, out before I, I was due to leave. That would have been a... But in the end, I got to Australia and I went through this whole massive experience of moving to a place like Sydney and starting to play. And then looking about at the bands that were playing there and what was happening there, I saw bands like The Saints. I saw bands like... The Saints blew me away. And then band, and, and band, Nick Cave's first band called The Boys Next Door. There were lots of really interesting things. And everybody toured. And I was in Sydney, so I saw them all. And suddenly I, was, I saw the Ramones. I saw, suddenly I was exposed to everything because I was living in a place where they all came. Yeah. So I had to go halfway around the world to do that. But to get back to you, the original question, no. It had never occurred to me. I just, I had, I had no idea. I just knew that I, I couldn't do I couldn't do that. I just wasn't cut out for that. You know, I did try a couple of times to do that. And, I'm not, and, I, and I've got the most admiration for people who can knuckle down into nine to fives and do that kind of thing. I just was not cut out for it. I just, I just couldn't uh, function. You, you know, you said that you, you, was, you was bitten by it the minute somebody put a coin in, you know, in the pot when you was busking. Yeah. yeah. Was you confident? Cocky. I was cocky. You know, I was... Uh, I was weirdly confident, actually. I, I came back when I came back to London, nineteen eighty-one. Answered an ad in the, in the back of Melody Maker, and went up to Jackson's Lane Community Centre in Highgate, and I met Neville, the sax player. And in, in, after the first rehearsal, go for a drink, and I said, "You know, we should we should get rid of the rest of these. We should form a band. I've got songs. You know, I was lying. I was just like, and then so I'm, but I, I was beginning to write and I had an idea and then we put an idea and got a bass player and a drummer and we said right and I said we're gonna you've got to give up your jobs we're gonna rehearse five days a week now it's all bullshit some 19 year old kid going I'm in the dinner but I knew deep inside that you had to give it everything at that age when before you've got any other stuff you have to commit totally and I thought if I throw myself in the deep end and I keep writing and I keep writing something will happen did they share your drive I think I was able to convince them by taking in so much material and, and getting better and, and things. We put a little indie single out. We started to get a couple of gigs. It was slow burner. It took us three years to get to the point where we had a record company come to see us. Yeah. And those three years were tough. But there were three years that in those days you could live on the dole. Yeah. Without some drone coming around going, what are you doing? 
you know, I mean, without the doll, I don't think half the bands in the 80s would have survived, or yeah. even the 70s. That was, that's what it's for. It's a safety net. My dad paid his taxes all his life. If he'd have been alive, he would, well, he probably would have argued with me. He would have said, get a proper job. But maybe not. You know, it's there to do that. And that's why we have, I think, you know, not so many what you might call working-class bands around, or bands or anything because it's fucking hard to do that. Yeah. It's hard, hard to survive these days. That's and, that. that- that, that, that's one of the main reasons I, I set this podcast up, being called Off The Beat and Track. Initially, my, my, it's kind of sort of formed into something else now, I guess. But uh, living on the outskirts of London and, and just being surrounded by so many, you know, I've, I've spent my life running a venue and, and being in bands and such. And, and so many people from where I live that start to get success move to London. And it doesn't really happen that much now because people can't afford to. And, I can't. And and so that's why you're seeing lots of the big guitar bands that are, that are starting to kind of dominate, you know, you know, rock music, indie music, whatever you want to call it. Generally, seem to be quite privileged, and because they're the ones that can afford to live in London and can afford to not have jobs and do, you know, four or five gigs a week, playing the toilet circuit, getting out there because. They haven't got to go to work. It's uh, yeah. it's 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 a strange time. It, it really is, and I think that that you know that's not just that's not just music. I think that's a lot of the arts in in, in general. Mm. Yeah, um, it, it's uh, and it's going to get worse because, and um, whatever your views are on Brexit, it, it doesn't seem to be a particularly good thing for for the arts. And then when you hide, when you put on top of that the COVID thing, and and they're going to be, you know, it's going to be tough, tough, tough. But I mean, I think one of the things that happens in in times like that as well is that it pushes it pushes people into to corners. And but sometimes that's a good thing. It's a more there's more there's a real hunger to, to something. I mean, I'm trying to think of the last band, the real band maybe Arctic Monkeys or something like that, that actually came through that played like that. You know, I know it's a kind of guitar bands are seen now as a sort of quaint, you know, but for me, the guitar still is the ultimate expression. I still, you know, I still, there's, there's still something untamed about a guitar. Yeah. So something, something in, in, in the way people play it that expresses their emotions that, I don't find in a synth, you know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not putting that down or, or saying that I don't get it because I do. I mean, I love like you know, Sleepwood Mods made me laugh. Then they one. I loved all that. You know, I like. I like the fact that they haven't. <laughs> they haven't moved on. Oh, <laughs> incredible! Incredible band. And like, yeah. uh, I, I, I got to speak to him at, um, uh, maybe two months into lockdown on, on this podcast, yeah. and just had a number one album. You know, I just love the fact that it's a couple of fellas that are my age. That yeah. one presses a button on a laptop and has a lager, while yeah. while his mate just you know rants and <laughs> uh, you know uh, in their late forties and they're having a number one album in you know in a pandemic you know where you can't go out and market your record in the traditional sense. I think it's wonderful that that you know and obviously the, the music's great and what he's got to say is you know very very interesting and uh, and, and and well written. But uh, yeah, I think you know bands like that. That's that's the sort of stuff that excites me at the moment. I think that, and yeah. and the fact that people are, you know, what you touched upon there, that sometimes when you're pushed in a corner and, you know, if you're kind of stripped of the means of going and rehearsing with your band or forming a band or whatever, I think, you know, 
if you've only got what's you know in in front of you, then I think that's when you kind of adapt that sort of punk yeah, ethos I mean, and you, the DIY yeah, thing. If you've got a limited palette, then it then it forces you into expressing and using what you got there, and, yeah. I, and they're a great example of that. I mean, they um, they're not mods and they're not from Sleaford either. I love it all. I mean, <laughs> it's just a, uh, uh, but it just sounds so alive, yeah, and fresh, yeah, and funny. You know, there's got there's definitely got that that, that thing that Marky e. Smith had, and yeah, you know, that kind of you, you you know funny as well as profound because mm-hmm. it's kind of such real experience my 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 thing is much different to that I've, I've really since i started songwriting i've i've just been carving away at this sculpture all my life really to try and find my own voice in it all to try and find some, some something which is uh born out of your own experience which is just your your own and so mine is in, in a way it's much more I wouldn't say conservative, but it's much more song based. I still, I still I, there were there were giants there, like Backwright and David and those people that I was talking about. That I'm still chipping away and looking at how did they do this and what are the what, and then you're basically you're trying to cast a spell. That's what you're trying to do with a record. However, you get there, it can be one chord, it can be really clever things, it can be like sneak from mods, it can be, a, you know, just you're just trying to make two or three minutes of something that momentarily. Is magic and cast a spell, you know. That comes back. That's what Boland did so cleverly. Yeah. You know, he was he was connected to Eddie Cochran, but with Tolkien and Glitter and all sorts of influences. But basically, they were like rock and roll singles. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. And they were recorded quickly. Yeah. I mean, I've I've known this because I've worked with Tony Visconti subsequently, and I met Mickey Finn and all that. And I pumped them. How did they do it? You know, oh, the guitar was done live with a vocal, and, and then he and I go, I haven't learned the song yet. He go, No, that's good. That's it. We've got it. You know, I love that. You know, it's like the Bob Dylan thing where he's he's I got that Eric Clapton comes in to play guitar, and he thinks he's showing them the song, but he's actually recording the song. You know, really? No yeah, I'm going to get you, but you know, I'm going to get you before you even have any self awareness at all about what you, you know. Clever yeah. first page. You know, Van Morrison, those guys, Neil Young, the ones that are so brave that they put out everything with the mistakes because they know, they know the value of the spirit and the spell that they're trying to cast. I'm sure Astral Weeks was, was recorded in like three days. I'm, I'm, I'm sure yeah. it was it was recorded so, so like quickly. Well, that's a quick one for him. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm, I'm sorry, that's a long one for him. Because I know that he has done things where he just lied. But um, yeah, it's... Well, he's got that wonderful line, hey, kids, dig the first takes. Mm. Which I think it's on uh, Hard Knows the Highway where he sings that. And he's talking there about when Frank Sinatra sings with Nelson Riddle strings and then takes a vacation. Because well, Frank Sinatra was the same. He walk in and goes, well, you've got one go, boys, because I'm doing it once. You know? And he's, he's talking to like Nelson Riddle and the orchestra. Yeah. They must be back. Because <laughs> 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 yeah. Frank's going to get one of his boys van if we don't get it right, you know. But yeah, no, that's because that is all about understanding the power of, the, of that kind of magic spell that you cast in the, the heart of music. Is that little that thing that needs to be protected? That really upset me when I started making records. I was so depressed by what they sounded like at first. How what's happened? Yeah, I didn't understand the process. I didn't understand the mixing, the mastering, and, and then every one of those steps to me was a, was a kind of sanitization of what I started off with. So I had, I had to I pretty quickly 
decided I'd get my hands on the levers of all this, learn how it works. I want to, I don't want some nerd who doesn't really understand the music. Fucking it up. You know, you go yeah. and do these you go and do these demos for record companies and you're in the booth and you're singing your heart out and you look and the guy's reading the paper. Oh sorry, mate, did you want me to take that? <laughs> yeah. And so you you have to, you know, you don't rely on the record company, you don't rely on the, anyone around you. You still however big you are, however small you are, you have to source it from within and value that little that little protect that magic. That's 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 the only thing really with the music for me. Because that's what that's what that's what people respond to when they hear it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. First song you remember buying from a record shop, please, Robert. Um, well, that that would have been the slider because that would have been a, that was a, that was one of those you used to get tokens, didn't you? That was an al- first album. I think I had so I might have had a single before then. I might have actually bought um, for my sister. All right now by the free. Right. By free. Yeah. On the pink thing. I, I, I seem to remember buying that as a present for Christmas. That would have been. But the first one I actually went out and saw it was the slider, would have been there, 72. Kings Lynn, where I lived, was a. Like I said, you know, it had a, it had a reputation as a violent place, um, well earned reputation, I've got to say. But it was also a music town. There was a, there was a, there was a record shop there called the Soul Bowl. Which was like... Is that where you bought it? No, no, but this was like... It was a Northern Soul town, and all my friends would go to these Northern Soul. I, wasn't, I, I was too young, I couldn't get there. But they would get all these mail order. So there was a... There was a my friends were playing soul music, you know, to me, like Stephen Willis and Sean Pigeon. I even remember their names. But, I, I you know, so they, they were listening to this stuff that was coming in, you know. Um, so it was always part of the experience there. But like I said, no bands ever came... I think Wizard came once, but that was it. Okay, so let's move forward a little bit for track five. I'm going to ask you the song that soundtrack your years clubbing. Clubbing years. Well, I think, um, so I moved back to London, 81. I, I would say uh, The Message, Grandmaster Flash. That was the one that just fucking blew my mind. When you heard that loud in a club, and it still does now, so much space it's just a simple delay on a very simple synth line and then they sat in the rap and that was like well no no this is this is this is a life changer because I went over to New York quite a lot in the sort of early 80s mid 80s I went I went over there with a backing track of Digging Your Scene to Arthur Baker's studio Unique thinking I was going to work with Arthur Baker but in fact, I was working with a guy called Michael Baker, who turned out to be inspirational. But what that, this studio I went in, you know, was was kind of portent of what was to come because there was nothing, there were no instruments in it. There were samplers and drum machines and millions and millions of MIDI leads, 85, 84. And they just took everything off the back of digging all the player and put these machines on it. And it sounded fucking marvellous. But I had a bit of a dilemma, you know, because on the one hand, I say, it sounds like a hit. I could say to the band, you know, when I got back, but you're not on it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, which isn't true because the saxophone player was on it, but initially Mr. Lindrum replaced all the bass and drums at that yeah. time. You know, this was pop music having its influence on pop music, you know. But to go back to your question, that was the one, that was the message, was the, the first, that was the, like, yeah, that's a, 
But you think that was a big record, wasn't it? It's an incredible record, and it sounds like when when hip hop, you know, when I first heard hip hop, it it, 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 a, it sounded like it was from outer space. I've never heard anything like it. Yeah. And and also it was you know the early eighties for me. You know, I'm I was born in seventy three, so the early eighties I would have been you know sort of ten, eleven. And, yeah. and, you know, this is at the time when American culture was the most exciting thing for a young lad, you know. All the films that were coming out was just, everything looked like, you know, it, everything in America is brilliant. And yeah. then that was all the kind of glossy stuff. Then all of a sudden, there'd be this book called Subway Art that was getting passed around my school about graffiti. And then all of a sudden, you know, people were wearing like Nike windjammers and, were, were, you know, were, were bringing in bits of lino to school. And, and you wasn't you, you you know I, I mentioned earlier where like you know the only place you'd see your your musicians were like on on top of the pops that yeah. kind of early stuff that was coming over you know like Bambata and and Flash and stuff like where could you see it unless it charted you might see a video on top of the pops but you know you were so starved of like actually seeing what these people look like and like any little bit you just like any little scrap was just so exciting and you know any radio was it dave mike allen dave allen who was the dj on radio london i can't remember what his name was like before um uh oh uh, what's his name before the uh the hip-hop dj that become a bit of a tim westwood tim westwood yeah um but yeah, like hearing, like you know, just trawling through your radio, trying to find a, a pirate radio station to hear some kind of like hip hop was like so sure. exciting. I mean, I've, one of the thing I, I should mention is that I, from eighty four onwards, I lived in Brixton and I shared a flat with this guy Hector. Hector was a sort of he was a he was a Northern Soul DJ from Derby, you know, young protege came down, and I shared a flat with this guy. And we lived above a record shop, which was an import record shop called Red Records in Brixton. So just by stealth, I found myself at the kind of epicenter of what was going on. Because he had he was he was the house DJ at the Wag Club. People like Norman Jay would come and watch him, Giles Peterson, they'd all come and watch him. Come out in the house, cold, cold cut, and all those guys would come around before they sit at his feet. What you got for a sector? What you well, I lived with him. So every night I got this education, I got this music going on. It wasn't just like hip hop, but it was Afrobeat. It was early house music. He gave me this list of house music and stuff. And when we toured America, I went, he said, go in this record shop in Chicago, Marshall Jefferson, but this is 85, right? Yeah. And so this is, how, this is what turned me on to house music early on, is how I got into the, doing that record with people like Kim Rizal and yeah. all that stuff. Because Hector was my, you know, um, had given me a heads up on all this. And, and just, and that, that really got into me. That, and I, with the experience of going to New York as well and working there, I did eventually with Arthur Baker and all those guys. It was just so exciting, you know, it was just so exciting at the time. And, uh, and so my dilemma was how to get that, you know, with the band, how to, how to bring those elements in, you know, to, you know, because obviously we, we would we were known for something different, but there were, it, it was it was such an exciting time. And going to clubs, you know, like we there was like the Flim Flam, and um, you know these clubs that Hector used to DJ, it just exposed me to so much that I'm so grateful for that. You know, wonderful. Yeah, and now my son Joe has carried that on. He's he's really good friends with Hector, but he's got his own thing, Joe, and he's doing it. You know, he's club in Peckham. He's got his label coach. He's doing his thing. You know, and it's really. Uh, yeah, it's, it's lovely to see. Excellent. Yeah. 
I'm going to take you home uh, for track six. Favourite artist, uh, favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Home county. <laughs> Did you think country as well? You will be. You will be about 185 of the 210 guests I've had have all said, "Oh, is it?" County, I thought it was country, so you, you're in. Uh, you're in the majority. If well, all right. I was born in uh, Scotland, in Haddington, which is in um, East Lothian. Uh, but I, but I spent most of my teenage years before my mom or my uh, my my youth uh, before I went to live in Australia in Kings Lynn, like I said. So you're talking home county, there. You're talking Norfolk. Now Norfolk, it's a limited. Uh, it's a limited. I would say the, the one that springs to mind, and don't laugh, is the singing postman. Okay. He came from Norfolk. And what actually he was obviously famous for, Marley Wimby, she smoked like a chimney and she's my little nicotine girl. But he came from a folk tradition. Now, the folk tradition, you know, I'm sort of knitting these things together nebulously, but it's important to me because I, one of the things that I absolutely adore is that whole Gwenny's Village thing, you know, the whole Gwenny's Village thing. It's going through Dylan and you start to do archaeology and you end up way, way back at the dawn of time. But I would love to be in a time machine and arrive, and arrive when the Clancy brothers arrived in Gwenny's Village in about 1957, all the way up to 1970. And there's people that I adore, like Fred Neal, Tim Harding, you know, um, Dylan, obviously, early Dylan, and people that whole because the the tradition of folk music was always big in my house because my mum and my sister Scottish sang them. It's deep in there too for me that Scottish Celtic folk music thing. And so the nearest thing that we had to that was this. There was a kind of Norfolk tradition. I did an album later on, a solo album called Flatlands, where I tried to evoke the mythical qualities of of the Fens. Because I tried to say that's really our deep south, you know, Mississippi. Well, look at Spalding, Chatteris. <laughs> I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't a hit record, but it, it did get me some interesting interviews with Radio 4. Because <laughs> um, there is a tradition, and, and that whole, so that whole eerie vibe in the Fens, which is all reclaimed land, mm. it should be underwater. So you get very odd light. You get the mist rolling in far too far. You get weird mythical creatures like the fen tiger and these odd-looking fish that live in the dikes. And there's a lot of material to write folk music from, and I think he did that, and I can't remember his real name, the singing postman. But that would be the guy. Perfect. Well, Robert, for your last track, um, you, you get to play, uh, you get to be Hector now, you get to be a tastemaker. Um, okay. A song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Okay, well, I'm going to go back to what I was just talking about. There's a song called Everybody's Talking, which is very well known because it was a hit for Nielsen in the film Midnight Cowboy. Mm. It's one of those beautiful songs that's just been done by so many, Frank Sinatra. But the guy who wrote it was a guy called Fred Neal. And uh, I was turned on to him by, actually, I, was, I had a small time when I was signed to Heavenly Records, a guy called Jeff Bauer, who's a great proselytizer of, of, of music and, and turned me on to so many things. But Fred Neal... I'll thank him forever. And Fred Neal wrote this song, Everybody's Talking, and his version is just sublime. And I like to think that Fred, who's not with us anymore, but he, he kind of retired in 1970. He wrote another song called The Dolphins. And he retired in 1970, which I did with uh, Beth Orton and Terry Cannier. 
He retired and he went to, to, to live at a dolphin sanctuary in Florida. He, formed, he went to work and do that. So he sort of gave it all up and followed his heart. And I like to think that he lived off the money off of everybody's talking because it became one of those songs that everybody covered. Yeah. Such a beautiful song. You know the song? I've never heard that version, no. No, but you know the song? You know oh, Nielsen's of course, yeah, yeah. Song? Yeah, yeah. Listen to Fred's original. It's just beautiful. So that's the song, again, most people don't know, but it's the original one. That, and the, again, on the same sort of tip, because he just died, Matt Davis, the guy who wrote In the Ghetto for Elvis, his version of In the Ghetto is a folk gem. Right. That's, yeah. uh, well, what, what, what we do, uh, Robbie, is we put together a Spotify playlist of all your song choices and some of the okay. other records that we've, we've spoken about that will oh, cool. accompany well, this send, chat. Send it to me and I'll share it. Wonderful. Uh, I will do that. So as, as we, I mean, we're recording this on the 17th of December. So as we're sort of moving into 2021 with, with you know, a bit of hope that we will become a little bit more connected uh, again. Um, oh. What are you looking forward to? Um, personally and and what's coming up professionally well personally I'm, I'm 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 hoping that yeah it's been such a difficult time but i think that i think it's also been a watershed time i think there's been a realignment of kind of people's thinking of values about what it was that we were where we were all going and what was it all about i mean there's a lot of that existential stuff and i know the powers of being want to push us back into this consumerist capitalist wet dream that we were all supposedly on. But I think the, I love the fact that the, the, the animals came back into, into the cities and that the, the people had time to sit and reflect and, and get off on the simple things again. And I hope we don't lose touch with that as things so-called return to normal. But I don't think there will be a return to normal. Yeah. In fact, I don't think it's possible. And, and that, I think, is a good thing. I'm just hoping that not too many people die along the way because I think it's been handled so badly. And I'm not going to get into the party political thing, but I just think it's been... But there should be a there should be a, a proper investigation into what's happened here. So on that level, um, I'm kind of hopeful because I think there will be there has been a a slight you know shift in the sort of traits here. I think and in people's thinking and values and what they value, and I don't think they will just return yeah. to what they were being sold as a as a fair complaint as a life. Personally, I'm, I just want to get I just want to get back on that stage and sing. I need to chat at people and sing again. Part of me, part of me that I've done all my life is since I was a busker is do that. There's a physicality to to singing that 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 makes me um, that acts upon me in a calming way. And I haven't really been able to do it. I think I've probably driven my beautiful wife mad. But sometimes I've had just to sing out. I just miss that. Actually, she loves it. I just just miss that um, that connection. Yeah. Because you know, the thing about gigs, and it can be anywhere. It could be the you know, and I've done them all, as you know. We've we played those big ones, and we play, and I've played to like tiny people. You know, I literally have played to one man and a dog once in Lewisham, um, <laughs> and the dog left. But um, uh, the dog got in for free though, so I mean, it, it wasn't. We did all right. Uh, yeah, what was I saying? I miss that because that connection uh, really is born of something that's not about me on stage and you down there and all that bollocks. It's something, it is, it is about a, a channeling and, and, a, and, a, and a unifying, soulful thing that happens when, that happens 
occasionally at a gig or when you're singing or something like that. That's that's a human connection that we've all missed. Yeah. You get it at football football grounds too. You do get it. You know where men who would otherwise wouldn't even look at each other or speak to each other are singing at the top of their. You know, I saw it yesterday, the other day when Liverpool were playing. There's only two thousand fans there. But when they sang, you'll never walk alone. There could have been a hundred thousand. Yeah. It just was like it was just sublime. And those those are the those are the human kind of uh, moments that we, that we've really been missing. That's that's what it is to be alive, to be human. I couldn't agree but, anymore. You know, and, but we must stop thinking of ourselves as separate to our surroundings and separate to our to the earth, to the animals, to everything. We, we are we are all part of that same thing and whatever religion you want to fucking use to get to that point use it as long as you don't hurt anyone I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of that so yeah and I, I, as ever I'm hopeful I'm, I'm an optimistic person by nature so uh, bring it on absolutely yeah. Robert it's been an absolute pleasure talking records with you thank you so much for your time mate oh my pleasure I'm, I'm, I've really enjoyed it oh wonderful thank you very much there you go. How good was that? What a wonderful man. Had a really, really nice chat. I hope you guys enjoyed that, um, enjoyed listening to that as much as I did, uh, you know, talking to Robert. It was a really, really nice warm chat. And, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm back next week uh, with another Natter. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I'd suggest that you go and have a, a look in the archives and, and trawl through the 200-plus episodes there. And, uh, and and get stuck into some of them. If you subscribe to the podcast, that's much appreciated. And and if you do that over on iTunes, then why not leave a comment and uh, let us know what you think of uh, of the podcast. And uh, and if you see us on the socials, we're on Spotify, Facebook, Twitter. I say we, it's me. Um, and yeah, give us a, a message. Um, you know, a like, love, share, retweet, whatever it is that you do on whatever platform. And uh, and yeah. And, and any help giving, uh, you know, whether you just give your mate a text and said, oh, check out this, he's had Dr. Robert on. Um, yeah, spread the word because uh, this is a, a labour of love and it's a wonderful labour of love. And, uh, and I hope you get, you know, a, a fraction of the joy uh, listening as I do um, recording these. And uh, yeah, so thanks ever so much for listening. Thanks again to Robert. And uh, yeah, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing, www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, 
go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beaten Track Podcast. It's Off The Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.